0: (laughs) Greetings from Cyberdelic Space, this is Lorenzo and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And to begin with today's podcast, I first want to play a soundbite from it that you'll be hearing once again in just a few minutes.
1: Psychedelic people look like everybody else and the one good purpose served by these events is that they draw them out of the woodwork. So you might look around and see who your affinity group is. Uh, odds are whatever you need, someone in this
0: room has it. <laughs> whatever you need. <laughs> And the reason that I wanted to point that out is because there's a gathering that I'll be at on the 19th of January, this coming January, and I think that it may be, uh, well, may just be one that fits the bill with uh, what Terrence had just said. The event is being organized by the Intheo Medicine Group in Santa Barbara, California, and it'll take place on the evening of Saturday, January 19th, 2019. Alan Badner will be the other speaker and he'll be talking about ways in which psychedelics can enhance a Buddhist practice. Maybe I'll see you there. And now I'm pleased to thank regular donor, Ian W. Uh, And by the way, Ian, I haven't forgot about returning those McKenna tapes that you sent. Uh, I plan on mailing them right after the first of the year and uh, hey, thanks again for letting me podcast them. Also, uh, we received donations from Christopher C., Samuel G., Dan O., Deborah R., and along with a very generous donation from Thomas R., and I'd like to thank you one and all from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, during the past 45 days, the number of supporters to my first-run Patreon feed has almost doubled, As you know, uh, I'm now podcasting new programs, first on Patreon, where my supporters are chipping in $1 a month to uh, help me begin this next phase of my life that's uh, taking place right now. And uh, for that princely sum, they not only get to listen to these podcasts in full a few months before they appear on the classic RSS feed, I also uh, host a live version of the salon every Monday night. Well, almost every Monday night, because I am going to take off Christmas Eve. But we will be live on New Year's Eve. Uh, However, I do hope that you'll have something better to do than than to chat with a few of us non-party people on that night. However, uh, speaking of parties, uh, how about we rejoin Terrence McKenna on a May evening in 1990 and uh, see what kind of a party he can stir up in our minds right now
1: so let's just take questions uh, and we'll go for a while before we begin there's just one thing I want to say a point that I want to make which is uh, I say it in all situations where I come to a place like this for the first time maybe you all do know each other I get the feeling this is a small town but anyway psychedelic people look like everybody else and the one good Purpose served by these events is that they draw them out of the woodwork so you might look around and see who your affinity group is uh, odds are whatever you need someone in this room has it <laughs> whatever you need
2: <laughs>
1: okay so much for clowning around yes
2: Um, as a parent of of a teenager and several other children I felt a responsibility to bring my oldest daughter here tonight these these same substances that we're talking about are out on the plaza on the streets of Santa Fe and and children are using them in ways that I think need guidance Um, can you speak to that?
1: yes, sure, I'm glad to this is an excellent question I have a, a boy 11, a girl 9, so I'm meeting this as well. What do you say to your kids about this issue and about drugs generally? Um, there's no, The main thing about drugs is a lack of education. I mean, we have to educate people about drugs and we have to tell them the truth. And the truth, unfortunately is complex so how do you tell a kid a complex truth you know i mean uh, the surgeon general says tobacco is as addictive as heroin tobacco you get from a machine heroin they send you up the river for years how do you make sense of this for a kid all i know to do is first of all i don't hide anything i do from my children and and I think it's a bad idea I actually make a character judgment I don't think people should hide what they do from their children this we can't light up a J till the children are in bed stuff is malarkey because it's it's giving a message of subterfuge and confusion means you'd have no principles you don't know where you stand on this you're all over the map in fact you look like an addict to something so why don't you just uh, you know, be out front about it? The other thing is, it's just like sex and all these tricky things that you come to with children. You try to give a good example, try to give the best information that you can, and um, you know, stand back and hope. But I really think the main thing is openness and education. And I say to my kids, you know, if you want to try something, discuss it with me. If you get past me, I'll get it for you. So, you know, don't be out on the street. We'll make sense of it together, whatever decision we come to.
0: That's great. That's exactly what Well, it's not very satisfying,
1: but I don't know what else to do, you know. Back there.
0: And then my question is... Uh, you have talked about all the very positive things that psychedelics can do and
1: you have talked very well about it you have expressed many wonderful truths <coughs> but then the other side of the point is what do you do or how do you deal with such occurrences as for example Charlie Manson uh, and uh, psychedelics being used for satanic purposes. The question of a Manson or something like that, I don't really I don't deal with that because I regard it as anomalous, but what I hear you asking is, what about the dark side of psychedelics? And I think that's certainly worth talking about. Um, it isn't a joy ride necessarily. One thing that is quite wonderful about psychedelics is that, uh, and I'll just speak of the mushroom in this case, is that it's wonderfully kind to beginners. But if you are an acolyte of the priesthood, sooner or later it will scare the socks off you. And in many ways it can do this. In fact, that's what's so scary about it is it knows the way to scare you just like it knows everything else uh, about you and um, so, so in my talk I stressed the facility with which one can access these places and I sort of teased yoga it is easy to access these places the question is then but is it easy to control and manipulate and understand these places? And this is where it can turn you every way but loose. This is where you want to have your mantras polished and your yantras ready. Because uh, in that domain, it all works. All that malarkey that doesn't ever work anywhere else. In that domain, it works. And... Uh, and so I think one should have techniques, uh, you know, the ring pass not, or mantras, uh, something that you have faith in, power objects. Ultimately, the best advice I've ever come on, and, you know, it's pretty sickening advice, but the goal is to survive these things, uh, is Frank Herbert's advice in Dune about fear. And he says, fear comes like a wind it comes and the way you meet it is you meet it and you wait and it blows and it blows and it blows itself out and then you're alone again and that's what you have to do and then in terms of practical uh, instruction there are way, ways to navigate through hard spots breath control singing singing is wonderful we tend to suffer silently, and if you get into a, a pressurized place on a psychedelic, I don't think it's a good idea to go to squeeze down and meet it like that. I think it's much better to sing, to you know, circulate huge volumes of oxygen through your body and just send your whole metabolism spiraling off in some other uh, direction. Shamanism was defined by the foremost uh, commentator on it, Mersiliad, as the archaic techniques of ecstasy. Notice its techniques. And this is really important. Uh, This is not a religion or an ontology or a set of beliefs like Buddhism, Hinduism, Catholicism, you name it. It's a set of techniques And the techniques deliver the experience. And then out of the experience, one creates whatever models of the universe seem appropriate. But uh, this is what science was before science. This is what religion was before religion. And it's deep. It's the deepest thing there is. Our society, living in ignorance of this, is infantile and destructive and narcissistic and materialistic and the whole gamut because we can't touch the gold in life. You know? It's hard for us. It's very elusive. It's far from us. Authenticity is fleeting and we require psychotherapists and self-affirmation and all this stuff to hang on to it. But this was... uh, this is, was understood and is there. I mean, my, how I got into this, like the gentleman who asked the question, is by being in the Amazon, by having searched India to see, say, you know, what can you show me? And they couldn't show me anything. They wanted me to sweep the ashram for 12 years and then something wonderful was going to happen. And and but then when I got to South America, I said, what can you show me? And I said, let's sharpen our machetes. We'll go out here and get some of this snake vine. And, come back and I'll show you and by 10 o'clock that night you know I was sobbing in the guy's arms he'd shown me I was a convert I'd sweep his courtyard for 12 years without asking <clears throat> anyway yes yes would you speak more about your ayahuasca experiences in the Amazon sure sure For those of you who aren't aware, although I think there's high awareness in this town, but (laughs) ayahuasca is uh, a hallucinogenic uh, plant and beverage made of that plant with others. It's slow-release DMT. What's happening is DMT is being combined with an MAO inhibitor to make it orally active, which would not ordinarily be the case. And it's a slow-release DMT trip that lasts from four to six hours. It's quite extraordinary. Uh, it's been it's existed in the Amazon for a long, long time. No one knows how long. I'm at work on a paper arguing that uh, Mayan religion that it reached as far up as Chiapas. This cult at one time and. Uh, What's interesting about it is, it's a little different from psilocybin. Psilocybin has this millenarian, high-tech, outer space, insects driving strange machines kind of thing to it. Ayahuasca is not like that. It's all about um, water and flow and life, and organic, and suspension of liquids, and miscible layers of flowing color, and it's wonderful, it's quite feminine, and it doesn't speak the way ayahuasca does, but you become like a camera's eye, you just become a, a roving eye, a moving eye, seeing in incredible things, and... Uh, it had a reputation when it was first uh, discovered the alkaloid was isolated and named telepathine because it was felt that there were group states of mind going on. And uh, I, I, this is so, this is happening. I mean, this is what you want to talk about shamanism. This is what it's about. These people upriver, bare-ass people, not people working in sawmills, but the still uncontacted or barely contacted people, the elders take this stuff together and they rise into a higher dimension of social data is the only way to put it. In other words, they see the, the group, the predicament, in a hyper-dimensional matrix of some sort where whether and game levels and social relations with other groups and all this stuff are factored in and then collectively they make a decision. And I, I went to the Amazon very interested in this because I think that part of what this whole incipient breakthrough that we're talking about is about is what I call an ontological transformation of language. I believe that language is something which when done right you look at it you don't hear it when language is correctly performed it is something seen and this is one of the arts of the high Paleolithic that we have lost we speak a barbarian speech ear speech ear speech is uh, has a very shallow depth of signal and these hallucinogenically these societies rocked in the cradle of hallucinogenic ecstasis through their shamanism were living in a kind of poetic hologram culturally created poetic hologram this is what all this talk about the poetry of high antiquity is attempting to reference you know all this talk about the Celts and the tremendous accomplishments of Thracia and Yugoslavia it's it's that language before male dominance the phonetic alphabet monotheism and all this other stuff confining cultural effects language was something that you see And when we take hallucinogens under group circumstances where there is an intent to have that kind of a linguistic experience, it occurs. It's just under the surface. It's in our biological organization, but somehow damped by our cultural organization. Something we have to learn. Well, this is what uh, shamans knew in high antiquity. It's what the peculiar interdimensional beings that I call self-transforming machine elves teach. It's what the entities in the other dimension, the so-called spirit helpers, the allies, I call them the tykes, these things, this is what they teach, a new ontos of language, an ontos of language beheld. Can you imagine? if you could see what I mean how close that would make us how in fact if you could see what I mean we would be the same person because seeing is so intimately connected with our definition of who we are that we place no uh, um, what do I want to say leans against it we accept what we see that's why when we talk about perfected speech someone doing a good job talking we say he spoke clearly it's a visual metaphor or we say to them I see what you mean I see what you mean means that for us authentic meaning is beheld This is because this is how we did it until we fell into history. History is the realm of the lower dimensional language slice, (laughs) among other things, of course. (laughs) Yes, someone else. Yes. Um, In in terms of language and the visual, don't you think there is a genetic connection with the symbols and the images? I mean, it would be the Jungian archetype but to me, it seems very genetic, the way those images have crossed cultures, well historically, I'm not sure whether I agree or not. Yes, to some extent. I mean, for instance, there are these repositories of imagery, and I, being Celtic, get these Celtic images, but then also I hit nodules of Mayan imagery And I'm pretty sure there's no Mayan genetic stuff floating around in my situation. I confess, I don't know, it's hard to make sense or to get a metaphor together that can encompass the psychedelic experience. I mean, for example, here's a game that can be played on ayahuasca if it's stiff. Uh, And that is, you can just say to the the onrushing stream of vision, Art Deco. And suddenly there will be thousands of ashtrays, cigarette lighters, candy, serviettes, stirring sticks, cocktails, all tumbling toward you in black space. And then you can say, you know, Italian Baroque. And here it comes, you know, these bleeding Madonnas and all this gold brocade. well that's pretty then you can say to it hey surprise me (laughs) and and the level of surprise will begin to rise until you say you've surprised me enough you know well The the first two examples, Art Deco and Italian Baroque, these are coherent styles which uh, affected whole eras and involved the lives of hundreds of artists and so forth. Well, What's happening with number three, the surprise me, where you've never seen anything like this before, is it also potentially... Capable of seizing a decade or two by the throat and stamping every t shirt and belt buckle and, with its kiss? And then, what are these things? These galaxies of stylistic motifs that you encounter in the hyperspace of the mind. Very bizarre. I, I confess, you know, there are no, I don't think this stuff has limits. I think we've hit meaning's uh, edge here it's a tool it's here's what it is it's for anybody who has ever defined life as a quest or a path or a search or a mystery it's like you've hit the main vein it is a path it is a quest there is a mystery and when you get to the mystery it's better Than you thought it would be. It's better than you could think it would be. Hell, it's the mystery. That's what it is. And you say, I never thought. I doubted all the way. The whole time I was looking, I never thought. And yet, you know. And it pays back. And you don't have to sign up with the rattlesnake people and the men who wear dresses and all this clergy and dogma and malarkey. It's that isn't it? You know. The mystery is real. It can take the heat. Can you? That's the question. How I do digress. Yes.
0: I would like you to comment on uh, how these psychedelics uh, give us access to part of the mind that we don't even imagine and uh, how this can be used.
2: Well, uh,
1: their answer has different depths. The first answer is Um, it's as though there were a nearby dimension that is made out of art made out of art great art in one of these deep passes which last about 20 minutes you feel like you have seen more art than the human race has produced in the last 500 years you, one person the the richness of our inner life is truly awesome I mean it, it, you know when they sent that probe out to Jupiter and hung it above these storms 11,000 miles wide and that sort of thing that kind of stuff is in your mind we have been so sold down the river by materialism I mean, we're living in a, a paradisical palace And our task is to communicate this to each other. So the the unifying and politically salvational aspect of psychedelics is that by showing us all this beauty, I think it allows secular, reasonable people to return to faith in the order of things. You know, this is real religion. This is why religion was created in the first place. Animals don't need religion unless there's something to respond to. And this is what it is, that there is a secret about this planet, about the way things are here, and that you find out the secret by digging in the sub-basement of your own mind. And then you come upon the lost records the true history of your family. And uh, it's as though, you know, I keep making these metaphors of dysfunctional relationships, but it's as though we are amnesic. We suffer from this dysfunctional relationship in prehistory, literally being torn from the arms of the goddess, plunged into male dominance by climatological catastrophe, and, uh, and then left to wander and we have we're haunted by this sense of of a of a perfect world somehow lost of a of a way of being somehow sensed and you know and then all these religions are hammering at us do it this way do it that way and we're just uncomfortable in reality and it's because we, we are amnesic. We have lost something. There is, the world is being pulled over our eyes. We are operating on one cylinder. We don't understand about how there is this tremendous, affectionate, helping intellecty that would like to help us through this for its sake as much as our own. So getting in touch with that, And you can call it getting in touch with the other half of your mind or getting in touch with your unconscious or getting in touch with the planet or getting in touch with the, you know, overmind in hyperspace. The point is there is an organized, intelligent universe of meaning that is trying to break through into the chaotic human world. It's the plan from the unconscious. And we are frozen, twisted. It's been a long, rough ride. We can hardly see straight. And yet, you know, we need to back down, step aside, and surrender. And the voices are being heard. We know what needs to be done. It's that ideology must be abandoned. Nature must be served. The future must be served I mean these are hardly uh, you know uh, argumentative positions yet who the hell is taking them and yet we must so anything which is a, cat- a catalyst to that kind of consciousness is uh, is definitely in play here at the wharf at the end of the world yeah um, and I want to tell you that I really love what you're saying and uh, it's validating my perception and I really appreciate it now um, I've taken a lot of uh, psychedelics and at a certain point I became confused um, it was very difficult for me to live within the, the morality of the society um, to live within society and uh, you know to function and to live So, I would love to hear more of your personal experience of how you align taking psychedelics and living in the world. Thank you. Good question. (laughs) The best advice I could give you is don't say everything you think. (laughs) That's how I do it. Well, but I mean, the question is an important one. Many times when I first started doing this in 83, 4, 5, after talks like this, people would come up to me and they would say, until I heard you talk, I thought I was crazy. And I've never told anybody any of these things that happened to me because my trips seemed to be, other people seemed to be having a good time and what was happening to me was what you're talking about and uh, part of the motivation for doing this is to build a community of agreement that can allow people to say you know the kinds of things that i say about self-transforming machine elves from hyperspace and nobody reaches for a white telephone <laughs> you know they say oh he's talking about that or he's talking about his visions in other words to give people permission to have an inner life, a rich inner life, because uh, it's there. So building community and clarifying language is very, very important. You know, it's illegal to take drugs or sell drugs or whatever it is, so we don't really have much practice even building up among ourselves images of what we're talking about. Probably most people in this room except for well and even them I was going to say except for the cops but even them everybody in this room has a notion of what's going on when I say drug experience everybody says oh it's like the time I but, but no having had a drug experience doesn't qualify you for talking about psychedelics or thinking you understand them and even taking psychedelics doesn't qualify you for talking about them or thinking you understand them they, they are not to be extrapolated from, from anything else it is unique the fact that it's even called intoxication is a joke it, it's more as though there is a doorway into an, either another part of our mind or another part of the space-time continuum And I'm, you know, pretty Amish on this. It's a very narrow band of substances that do the thing that I find most fascinating, and you're certainly free to disagree with me, but I place great stress on vision, on hallucinations. And people say, well, why? It makes you feel good. You have great insights. Why are you always harping on vision? Because being sort of a reductionist The visions are the part of it that convince me that it isn't me because I can examine the visions and say, (laughs) 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 but an emotion or an insight, what would be the point in saying that isn't me? But the, the visions are coming from somewhere else other than the self or if this is the self, then it's unrecognizable the Jungian cartography did not set us up for it it did set us up for what LSD is showing but when you go deeper like with DMT the Jungian maps are useless I mean, you don't know where you are and you don't think anybody's ever been here before I mean there are no initials on the trees let me tell you <laughs> <clears throat> so so p- part of the uh, so part of the answer to this what is to be done question and the political question and the question up here about integrating it into our lives and what I'm trying to do, I mean I should just be up front with you, is it's a very conscious and subversive effort to uh, goose along the evolution of language. We can't create a new world before, unless we can talk about it. And So the forced evolution of language the forced and rational and designed Expansion of the capacity of language is our best way to get out of this mess we have problems We don't even know we have because we don't have words to talk about them the psychedelics Operating on the social level where we're talking about not my trip your trip, but what does it do to millions of people it? Uh, enriches language it incites colorful speech. It provokes metaphor. Know what I mean? So that, and that's what it was doing way back then. And it gave us language and all these control languages that flowed from it. But now we can consciously contemplate that effect and attempt to engineer it and attempt to create languages that make these dimensions real that give them a political consequence, that give permission to other people to think about them, to explore about them, to wonder about them. And by this means, very slowly, let us hope fast enough, attention will uh, evolve. And it's basically, you know, as fast as we each care to participate in this project. And it's not easy, see, the initial political challenge is, is to get stoned and people resist that because they've got something to lose, or they think they've got something to lose. So it's uh, it's very tough political work uh, <laughs> over here. On what you just spoke about, language in itself is based on metaphor, and metaphors point where we're going. You agree? So on the endless consonants. Or, 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 or. it seems that in that metaphor, we're stuck, we can see it, we can feel it, but we can't quite bridge it, we can't get beyond it, and go along with what we're saying as far as the, the domain of the language, Somehow we've got to get beyond this one. Well, I agree with you, 100% yeah. in work and Burrell's work
0: and all those.
1: But if, if we're continually using the metaphor and the myth and shifting it, how are we going Because all we're doing is shifting Well, when we go beyond language, are we going to discover silence or song? That's what I think. I mean, I think that this, this visual language thing uh, needs to be thought about very carefully for a long time, it seemed to me it was unbridgeable, it was a creature of my own imagination. But technologies exist that are going to, and are being perfected, that are going to allow us to see each other's aesthetic intent, you know, to, to be able to leave the foot, to follow the footprints of the artist through his own imagination in a kind of virtual reality. and. I think probably we're headed for some kind of quasi-telepathic meltdown and that the ego is, its life is limited and we have no idea how profoundly this will affect each of us because we may like to think we're new style, but when it comes to the real trans-techno-polymorphically perverse, multi-cyber human being. I don't know how many of us could cut the mustard. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, but I, I, I don't want to get into a dualism here. See, I think all terms are migrating toward each other. Uh, the drugs of the future uh, will be computers, the computers of the future will be drugs. One way of thinking of the historical enterprise is that what we're about here is we're trying to turn human beings inside out. We want to exteriorize the soul and interiorize the body so that the body becomes an image of some sort freely commanded in a domain called the imagination and the soul, previously difficult to locate, becomes actually a cultural artifact. I imagine it rather like a polished silver disc. And, and that exteriorized soul becomes the new loci of self-identification. You know, if any of you have followed Julian Jane's work, you know that he thinks the ego arose in Homeric times. That recently, 1500 B.C., uh, Yeats in Sailing to Byzantium has this wonderful line, if, something about, if ever out of nature I should be turned. It's all about becoming a jeweled object, the thing of gold and gold enamelling to play for an emperor. It's the image of the transformation of the human soul into a technical object. And a lot of people get their hackles up at this point. The image which I think unifies all this stuff is the flying saucer. I mentioned in my main talk the transcendental object at the end of history, but nobody rose to debate. The notion here you see is that um, the reason things are so nuts is because we are actually in very close to some kind of temporal discontinuity. And the phenomenon of history itself is the shockwave of an eminent eschaton, if you will. In other words, the reason history exists is because of the nearby presence in time of a transcendental object, which I call the eschaton, which is casting a kind of lower dimensional shadow backward through time so that all these messiahs and aesthetic anticipations and prophecies and all this are distorted interpretations of this transcendental object. And the flying saucer is this as well. The flying saucer haunts time like a ghost. What is it? It's the cursor on God's reality processor. (laughs) If you've ever worked in word processing, you know that there's a little blinking thing called the cursor, and you move the cursor in the text to the place where you either want to put something in or take something out, and once you have made the excision or the inclusion, you move the cursor elsewhere in the text, and this is what the UFO is. It's uh, it's a um, it's like a ricocheting reflection of God's mind at the end of time, and to to cross it, to to come into its aura is to get this tremendous hit of the weird. This is what the weird is, as a matter of fact. The weird is the backward-flowing casuistry from the object at the end of time. And the reason the 20th century is so fraught with contradiction, paradox, hope, horror, is because we are drawing tangential to this transcendental object. And every time you take a psychedelic, you are in eternity with the transcendental object. You see it, you know, dead ahead, 22 years, and you're closing with it at the speed of light or something. Uh, and it is what causes the phenomenon of ourselves being drawn out of nature. We, there is a drama, there is a wooing, there is a royal marriage, an alchemical process underway and we are the bride, and we are being drawn toward this union with this thing, which is what history was for. History is the placenta of this process to carry us to this moment of fusion where everything then falls together, makes sense, lifts off, closes down, and says goodnight. <laughs> That's all. So. die hard <laughs> with uh, ayahuasca
2: do
1: you, do you have a sense of witnessing and that you're having experience when, when you take an ayahuasca or is it sometimes change them uh, ayahuasca is this mo- these moving walls and membranes it's a labyrinth uh, it's The interesting thing about ayahuasca is, chemically, that it is made of neurohumeral substrate. Technically, there's no drug there. There's DMT and beta-carbolines, both of which occur endogenously in human metabolism. It's a kind of brain cocktail. That's why, it has, uh, that's why it has evolutionary implications, potentially. It's possible that we're, that in the um, uh, metabolic pathways of the pineal, we're only a one or two gene mutation away from switching out an inactive cogener for a psychoactive cogener in that pathway. And in fact, this may have been traded off genetically through time. There may be shamanic lines. There may be people who have a facility for these things that is actually uh, uh, in the genes. But to me, the most spectacular hallucinogenesis occurs under DMT. And DMT, it's interesting. It's worth talking about for a moment because it too is an endogenous, neurotransmitter even though it's a schedule one drug everybody's carrying it all the time you know they don't need anything else on the books we're all illegal (laughs) as we sit here but what's interesting about DMT is it's the strongest of all these hallucinogens and it comes on in a few seconds 30 to 40 seconds And yet it fades in a matter of four to five minutes. Well, now, what does this mean pharmacologically? You see, one way of thinking about a drug, if you're thinking, you know, trying to assess toxicity, is um, how long does the drug stay in your system? If If you have rubbery knees and blurred vision 48 hours after doing something, It's garbage, you know. Your body should be able to get rid of it. Well, DMT clears your system in three to seven minutes. It means it's like hurling an ice cube into a blast furnace. It means that when the DMT hits the synaptic cleft, these enzyme systems swing into action and say, oh, we understand what this is. We know how to dealkylate, deanimate, and shuttle this into harmless pathways like indolacidic acid. And then you come down almost as fast as it can be said. Yet it's the most profound of all of these things. Conveys you instantly into a place so bewilderingly and titanically bizarre and profound that your jaw hangs in the air. You know? A place you never suspected existed, not a hint, not a jot, not an iota you never dreamed it was possible. And suddenly there you are, you know. Well, this is profound information about the human organism about ourselves about who we are who are you if that can happen to you it's a very mysterious part of you we go back and probe the orgasm thing over and over again but this is even this is much more intense much more content laden and yet what is all this content these weird objects Where are they coming from? What does it mean? Who are these entities in there? Are they, you know, wandering extraterrestrial do-gooders? Or, you know, is it humanity in a far-flung future trying to pull the chestnuts of the 20th century out of the fire? Or, you know, is it your dead grandmother? You can't figure it out. And yet, you know, it's really happening to you. You have to come to terms with it. I and mean, that, that, to me, is the strangest thing about all of this stuff, is that it's real. It's like science fiction. It means that the world is science fiction. It means that there are things and places and possibilities going on that just read the mundane out. All those people who think the world is straight and rational and reasonable and squared off at the corners, they're just whistling past the graveyard. It is so wild and woolly out there that you just come back, you know, eyes round jaw slung because it's so peculiar and so near. I mean, this culture that we're living in is a tiny island. A bulwark raised against the unspeakable, which is raging all around us. Hell, every time you hit the sack, it closes over you. And it's only through the grace of forgetting that we're able to reestablish it here. You know, this tiny little bubble of sanity. Well, yes, but what, what's going on in the rest of reality? Grab a clue. <clears throat> yes might talk bit about more. Do you think that uh, the reality, you a people have access to virtual reality, or will it be just game? Yeah. No, I think that it's possible. I, I'm i comfortable with virtual reality. I'm just getting used to it. So you do like it in order to I did I did it in order to write articles about it. I visited all these labs. I have, the heaviest battle I had with my wife this year was over virtual reality and whether or not it's just another male, mechano, techno, crap trip, or my position that there might be something going on here, it's, I don't like it that it's so machine-like. On the other hand, all those machines could be shrunk down to the size of a sugar cube, for those of you who hate the idea of virtual reality, I have an argument that might sway you. Uh, I just saw a paper. God, I hope I'm. this isn't industrially proprietary information. But anyway, I just saw a paper where these people have an, a virtual reality system, but they want to slave it to a satellite navigation system so that it can locate wherever you are on Earth to within three feet and then the proposal is all advertising will be made illegal in three dimensions and will be forced to go virtual so that you will have to be wearing glasses and you will see ordinary reality except all the signs will be there. But if you take the glasses off, the signs will have been taken down in 3D. No billboards in 3D, no advertising, no print of any sort. If you want to read the signs, you're gonna have to buy the goggles. So there's an argument for uh, virtual reality. Yeah. Well have that thing uh, in the air can virtual reality tape out there if anyone can see it. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh see it. Okay. Oh, they can see it. My apologies. <laughs> well let's see one last question and then you should go do something more interesting I hope you can figure out what it is go into nature go into your own mind I mean the, the message is rising the urgency is rising and uh, you know if you have ears to hear hear and eyes to see see uh, in terms of what that means practically and I suppose I should leave you with this thought uh, do these things in silent darkness and do them with attention silent darkness you don't need bach or moody blues to skip it silent darkness let trust that your mind is richer than you think it is and study the darkness behind your closed eyelids with the expectation that you will see something and pay attention to breathing and s- and sound song Open your mouth. Let air move through you. And uh, five grams of, of mushrooms in silent darkness, I'm telling you, it's, it'll make a believer out of you if you aren't already. Good luck.
2: You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon where people are changing their lives one thought at a time.
0: In case you are uh, relatively new here to the salon, I should insert that uh, not everybody agrees with Terence's idea of uh, taking 5 grams of dried mushrooms in silent darkness. Although uh, I have tried this on more than one occasion, over time I... Well, I finally came to the conclusion that candlelight and music, uh, done right, can greatly enhance a psychedelic voyage. The secret for me is to uh, have a wide range of music available and have the ability to uh, easily switch from one mood to another. Also, uh, <laughs> I suspect that some of our younger fellow saloners were chuckling to themselves when Terence went to great lengths to explain what a cursor was and how it works with a word processing program. Well, before you get too smug, uh, please keep in mind that this talk was given in 1990, and that was two years before the World Wide Web even came into existence, and, well, not all that many households had a reason to buy a computer yet. So, not many people really knew what he was talking about back then. Well, as this year is now coming to an end... There's not only the excitement of getting together with friends, but many of us also uh, take a look ahead and begin making plans for the coming year. For example, I'm working on talks that I'll be giving in January at the Entheo Medicine event in Santa Barbara, and another for the Imagine Conference in March on Orcas Island. And I suspect that uh, many of our fellow saloners are also making plans for uh, Burning Man, Lightning in a Bottle, and others. But I hope that you also keep in mind what John Lennon once said about making plans for the future. Remember it? He said, and I quote, "...life is what happens while you're busy making other plans." End quote. And uh, as hard as it is to focus on that thought, I find it important to do so whenever it comes to my mind, because, well, life, your life, is taking place right now. The past is gone and the future isn't here. Life is always here and now. So, I find it helpful to uh, seek out the little things each day in an attempt to uh, stay aware and in the moment. So, from time to time, uh, fellow saloners send me a copy of their recent CDs, and, and while I always listen to them, it isn't often that I find the right slot to uh, play one of their songs on a podcast. So, when I received a copy of the latest CD from the Imperfectionists, whose music I played on a podcast once before... The first thing that struck me was the title, Don't Get Owned. (laughs) And if you know me, you know that that's a title that would catch my eye. Then I noticed that the release date fell on my youngest son's birthday. On top of that, one of the songs was titled Is, Is, Is. (laughs) Now, if you've been joining our live Monday Night Salons lately, you probably remember my telling the story about the mushroom trip I had where the word is just continually echoed in my mind over and over and over for hours. Uh, (laughs) So of course I had to listen to this song. And you can imagine the smile on my face when it began with the words, I'm tripping through a meadow with a very good friend of mine. We've been looking at a flower and having a very good time. (laughs) However, it was the chorus that really got me because it ends with the words. Be pleased for the day. These are the days. These are the days of our lives. And, my friends, that's the message that I hope you can keep in mind as we end one year and begin the next. Because these are the days of our lives. Today, here and now, not next summer, but here and now is where and when your life is taking place. So make it matter. For now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends, and, hey, I'll leave you with the imperfectionist recording of their song, Is, Is, Is. (laughs) ¶¶
2: I'm tripping through a meadow with a very good friend of mine. We've been looking at a flower and having a very good time. And if I thought of it before, I'd have brought some wine. And it is what it is and I like it that way. Just being here with you is fine. Be pleased for the day. These are the days. These are the days. Be pleased for the day. These are the days. These are the days. Pain is very real Do you think I'll live? I don't know Do you think I'll be able to feel? If I thought of it before I would have checked the road It is what it is and I like it that way And I haven't lost my hope Be pleased for the day of the days, these are the days. Be pleased for the day, these are the days, these are the days of, the day of our lives That way And if I thought of it before I'd have left my pain behind And it is what it is And I like it that way Just being here with you is fine Be pleased for the day These are the days These are the days Be pleased for the day These are the days These are the days of our lives